one thinks of the connection of religion and imperialism in Japan, one automatically thinks first of Shinto and second of Buddhism. Christianity does not usually figure into that story. However, Dr. Emily Anderson, in her new book, Christianity, Imperialism in Modern Japan, Empire for God, published by Bloomsbury, shows how and why it must be included. Through her detailed and rich study of Japanese Protestants, particularly Congregationalists, Anderson illustrates the disparate way these Christians relate to empire. Some fully supported the Japanese empire, believing that through it Japanese Christians could both solve the problems faced by Western Christianity and bring civilization and Christianity to Chinese and Koreans. Others, through the dissemination of Christian understandings of anarchist and socialist ideas, challenged the very idea of empire and called for a small Japan. Anderson's eye for detail and her careful presentation of these different views make this a must-read for anyone interested in Asian Christianity and the relationship between religion and empire. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Emily Anderson about her new book, Christianity and Imperialism in Modern Japan, Empire for God. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I wonder if we could start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I guess the, the um, best way to start is really at the beginning. Um, I was born in Japan to an American father and a Japanese mother. And uh, with the exception of two years in New York when I was very young, uh, grew up in Japan, but went to international school. And I went to a international school for the children of American missionaries primarily. And my own parents were not religious at all, but um, I went there from first to 12th grade. And so that uh, environment really shaped a lot of my early years and um, also eventually uh, my research interests. Um, when I graduated from high school, I went to um, college in California, to Claremont McKenna College, and initially actually worked at a museum in Los Angeles, the Japanese American National Museum, um, where I was the lowly phone receptionist for a year and then ended up in the <laughs> territorial department, where I first uh, was exposed to primary sources. I was a literature and philosophy major in college and wrote my thesis on Flannery O'Connor. I had no interest in Japan, um, history, anything, but it was in, uh, through my work as a curator, assistant curator, I, one of my jobs was to review uh, donation offers to the museum, and because I happened to be the only person working at the time who could also read the Japanese language materials, I spent a lot of my time going over uh publications and also the sort of private papers of Japanese immigrants from before World War II. And it was that experience of being completely sort of enmeshed in um, not only sources, but also helping to develop an archive and collection that made me really interested in studying history. And um, rather than study Japanese American history, which was my job, I um, decided that I wanted to study Japanese history and specifically actually the history of the modern history of Japanese Christians because of uh, questions I'd had for a long time from, you know, my childhood um, growing up around these mis American missionaries in the 80s and 90s. So I ended up at UCLA where I worked with Fred Notelfer. Um, I was his last student and um, ended up uh, focusing on uh, Christianity and ultimately empire um, as the main sort of frame of reference uh, for my graduate work. So um, that's sort of my background leading up to now. Excellent. Well, and this really shows um, for our listeners in the book, one thing that's really interesting is that how 
um, Emily does bring together all these different kind of streams, right? Because this, even though the, the book is focused on these Japanese Christians in Japan, it's far reaching, right? It's all over the empire and even into the United States. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of, um, one of the things that I really gained from my experience working at the museum was the realization that Japanese immigration abroad in this period was so intricately connected to the history of Japan itself. Um, and that's something that what, isn't as uh, readily evident in the scholarship, I think. And I think that there are a small group of us now who are not, who are multilingual or in my case, just bilingual, but, you know, multilingual who are also um, familiar with the, the scholarship on both sides of the Pacific, who are trying to bring that more holistic approach or geographically holistic approach to the study of Japan, that it wasn't, you can't really separate these different parts of the world if you want to look at modern Japanese history before World War II. Right, right. Well, kudos to you all for, for doing that, because that's I mean, that's something I feel like we need more of in Korean studies. People are doing that. Um, it's it's really important, especially when we're dealing with the, with missionaries. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's definitely it's always going to be transnational. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you see the same names sort of pop up here and there. And then you realize, oh, I can't if I just follow the path people take, I will eventually come to these different places, whether or not I had intended to include those in my work. Right. So how then did these interests and your education gel into this particular book? So um, this is sort of this is an interesting question, because, you know, when I first applied to graduate school, my proposal was so shockingly conventional and and really kind of stupid. I initially proposed to work on my to focus my dissertation on U.S. missionary Japanese convert relationships. Um, I mean, I meant to do it in some way that was new and different, of course as we all mean to do, but it was, you know, looking back on it now, an incredibly sort of conventional and simplistic framework, but that was what one was sort of just sort of available to me based on the work that the previous work I'd seen. And also more importantly, you know, I had grown up around all these American missionaries who went to Japan, um, some as old as uh, people who had gone to Japan during the occupation, but most of the parents of my friends had gone to Japan in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, and really approached Japan as a mission field of um, very few reached people. I mean, this, you know, they did not um, they did not treat uh, Japanese Christians as real equal partners, at least not in the way I heard them talk about their local churches. They were you know, church plants, um, they they were really sort of fledgling, struggling congregations. And so even though my entire sort of social um, life outside of my own home growing up was all about Christian missionaries in Japan, I had no knowledge of this rich and diverse and really quite exciting history of Japanese Christians who, you know, predated the arrival of these missionaries by 100 years. And so um, as soon as I started graduate school, I sort of began to voraciously read everything I could get my hands on about Japanese Christianity, including in Japanese. And suddenly I started to discover that there was quite a diverse range of Christians who engaged in really interesting theological debates, who were very sort of confident and rejected missionary influence and even, as it turned out, became missionaries in their own right into into Japan's colonies in East Asia. And so by about two or three months in to graduate school, I realized, forget forget about the American missionaries. 
that's what everybody focuses on is this moment of contact, this moment of conversion. And I talk about this in the introduction of my book is I wanted to do something that started when conversion was no longer the thing when that was in the past, when Japanese Christians had already come into their own and to focus on, okay, now that there are Christians in Japan, what then? What are their concerns? Um, what do they want to accomplish? What do they believe? How do they define what it means to be Japanese and Christian? Um, and to not give so much airplay to the missionaries who had gone to Japan and to get away from that sort of West-East sort of false dichotomy that I think um, informs a lot of uh, earlier works on Christianity. And, you know, the earlier work is incredibly valuable in its own right, but also still um, privileges sort of a Western perspective of sort of the Western missionaries in Japan and how they see and how they evaluate the quality of Japanese Christianity. Right. No, very, very important. And I think that's, that's one of the, the several multiple contributions your, your book is making. And that, that's one thing I really enjoyed about it um, in particular well, thank- was that aspect. So I, uh, I like um, so you, you mentioned how you were talking about that in your introduction. I thought your introduction had a very interesting name. Um, All roads lead to Anaka. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So um, Anaka in Guma Prefecture is this, um, you know, sort of medium sized, sleepy little town. And um, the reason why I use it as the focal point for the introduction is because in the history of Japanese Christianity, it really um, is a sort of a very weighty presence. And it's because of, in some ways, a historical accident, but there are also reasons why it makes sense that it becomes important. And that is that a man named Nijimajo, who uh, was from or his family um, had its roots in Annaka, but they were a samurai family stationed basically in Edo or current Tokyo. Um, he fled Japan before a f- Japanese were officially allowed to go abroad. And he did that by going up to um, the what the t- at the time was the treaty port of Hakodate and stowing aboard an American whaler because as legend has it, um, I say that slightly tongue in cheek because you know, right. with these sorts of stories, you wonder how much of this is true and how how much is embellished. But um, <laughs> he had discovered a Chinese Bible in a book stand in Yokohama. There, there were treaty ports already, so there were foreigners in Yokohama and Hakodate and Kobe, but um, Japanese were not yet allowed to travel freely abroad. And he had discovered this Chinese Bible and had basically spontaneously converted, sort of in this very loose way. And wanting to discover more about Christianity, as the legend goes, he went to seek out sort of an American whaler that he could stow aboard. And immediately he was discovered, but as, you know, um, the captain adopted him and was, uh, you know, sort of warmed his heart that this Jap- young Japanese samurai wanted to learn more about American Christianity, um, takes him to New England, where he is enrolled in um, in various of the schools in New England, including Amherst College. And Nijima spends 10 years abroad and becomes well-educated, bilingual, is beloved, and then at the end of those 10 years decided that he was going to return to his homeland and um, raise up a generation of uh, Japanese young men who would be Christian leaders for the new nation. And in in that time, Japan had um, 
sort of reopened to the West. And um, I mean, they had the restoration had happened. There's a new government in place. Japanese were no longer forbidden from traveling abroad. And also the prohibition against Christianity had also been recently um, taken down. So he travels back and he goes to Annaka, his ancestral home domain. And again, as the legend has it, preaches um, actually in a Buddhist temple and there are 30 converts from that experience. Then he goes to Kyoto where he founds the school that was his main mission and that becomes Doshisha University in Kyoto. But in the interim, there are this this group of sort of the earliest, not the earliest, earliest, but this group of converts in a non-treaty port in Japan. And he then um, subsequently sends some of his students from Doshisha to Annaka to carry on evangelism. And so Ebina Danjo, who's one of the key figures that I focus on in my book, is the first evangelist and becomes the first minister of the church that they build in Annaka. When Ebina, Ebina leaves and eventually um, Kashiwage Gien, who's another major character in, in my book as well, becomes um the minister there for over 30 years. So even though it is a sleepy little place in the, in the middle of a very, um, if you ask anyone from Japan about Guma, they'll tell you it's, you know, it's like Nebraska. It's, it's dull. It's nobody goes there. There's like four Starbucks in the entire prefecture even today. Um, and yet in the history of Christianity, this one sort of out of the way place is actually sort of a linchpin and that brings together all of these people and, um, from which they expand out to not only Japan, but in some cases actually abroad. Right. Excellent. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I, I like how you started things off with that, you know, with that story kind of bringing things together. And you kind of touched on, on as you were talking about this, this really strong kind of current of optimism mm-hmm. in Japanese Christianity, the idea that the Japanese Christians would succeed where the West had failed. Yes. Yeah, that's something that um, struck me very early on, which, you know, there's something um, so tragic about that optimism. You know, for those of us who know what happens um, eventually in Japanese history, the the optimism that was possible for um, the generation born sort of right before during the Meiji period. Uh, so Meiji period starts in 1868. So that generation that really came of age when Japan was really in the early stages of um, trying to work out what what it was going to be in this new world order if it's so rudely you know forced to join um, the this generation of men sort of the that first generation of Christian converts um, and their their contemporaries elsewhere in other sort of fields they really possessed I mean in many ways, this incredible belief that they could um, change the course of Japan's future. Um, I would say that when you go one generation past that, once, you know, sort of bureaucracies take hold and there's less of the sort of individualism that the next generation is not is not so sort of visionary and not so spontaneous. And I mean, this is a group that was educated in a time when education was in a crazy amount of flux, depending on what school you may know English as well as Japanese. I mean, an example is, you know, Ebina went to the Kumamoto School of Western Learning, uh, which was um, taught by uh, the sort of head American hired for that school is Captain James and who had gone to West Point and so ran the Kumamoto school, sort of like West Point. And so Ebina from the age of 13 had to learn half of his classes in English. Um, so was quite um, 
comfortable in English, but also it changed his Japanese um, so that his Japanese has a much more um, it's its syntax is much closer to contemporary Japanese. Um, although his kanji, this this whole generation liked to play loose and fast and loose with how they wrote characters. They were they sort of made things up occasionally, which uh, <laughs> makes it really irritating when you're trying to figure out what they were writing. But um, Kashua Gigian, on the other hand, studied at a more traditional Confucian sort of temple school. So his style of writing, although Kashuagi is a little bit younger than Ebina by a few years, they're almost contemporaries, a little bit, you know, they would have been sort of middle school, high school difference in age. But Kashuagi has a much more sort of, uh, there's an older feel to his writing because his education was was um, not, you know, I mean, he did go to Doshisha eventually, but his formative education was very much um, in sort of a more classical mode. So um, it was just sort of, I mean, in some ways it was a wild and crazy time. And because it was a time of flux and a time of confusion and a time where, Really, it was unclear what Japan would become. You had this whole generation of men where, and women as well. Um, I mean, I don't pick up women so much in my book, but that's sort of a second book, I think. Um, probably not by me, but by somebody, hopefully. <laughs> um, but, you know, this entire generation of Japanese, um, you you could imagine, I mean, it's sort of like the American Western, you know, this the sense of anything could be possible because so much was what was what was known and familiar was gone or was in danger of being gone. And if you could play your cards right or if you could, you know, if you had good fortune or if you could be charismatic enough, um, maybe you could change the world. I mean, you, you really feel that incredible um, optimism, which you know, I mean, history doesn't, um, unfortunately, like that was, it was fantasy, really, um, the degree to which they believe they could shape events. But there is something really that from the perspective of, of a historian, at least in my case, I find um, really captivating and also um, important because I think in the case of studying Japanese imperialism, it is so easy to get caught up in what it eventually becomes in the last years, in the 30s, in the late 30s, World War II, where it becomes um, where so much is terrible and not just restrictive, but I mean, the the degree of censorship, the degree of violence used to um, really just undermine and destroy any form of dissent. I mean, those things are so cast such a long shadow over the previous decades. Um, but I think it's really important for historians to recover those um, earlier decades and the, the possibilities that seemed there and um, these alternative visions that people were putting forth and were able to do so without being censored or, you know, clever strategies people had to get around that censorship that, that, that diversity of opinion and um, the hopes that were sort of invested in that, those things were possible, um, that it wasn't a foregone conclusion and that something did happen. And there, there was a series of events and series of shifts and series of, you know, shifts in popular opinion that happened to enable the eventually incredibly oppressive regime that, you know, that we sort of think of when we think of pre-World War II Japan. But I think um, recovering these voices and the kinds of ideas that that they um, expressed is a really important task for the historian, that just because they didn't win, quote unquote, win in the end is no reason to not um, 
really take their ideas seriously. Right, and that really comes very strongly through your book. I really enjoyed. I mean, I felt like I really got to know uh, your the subjects that you're you're looking at because you do such a great job of translating and and uh, kind of synthesizing their ideas. Well, thanks. That's really nice to hear. Oh, good. They, they do feel a bit like, you know, the, the sort of unruly gang that I carry around with me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, can you tell one thing also I just want to highlight, though, you ch- for the most part, you chose to focus on congregationalists. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you did that. So there are two reasons. Um, one is sort of a practical one. Um I didn't want to write the comprehensive book on Japanese Christianity. One, it's, it would take me 50 years. And two, I, you know, I don't think that's very interesting because then sort of the point of that would just be to collect everybody and have, you know, sort of a bit of everything about everyone. And that's not particularly compelling. Um, and when, and so then you need some, some sort of structure to limit who you're going to include. And I picked the congregationalists over other denominations because um, because their organizational structure is congregationalist, as in um, congregations um, have greater uh, control over what happens in the churches. There's less, there isn't the same kind of overall sort of uh, administrative direction that comes from, say, Presbyterian or Methodist. And so the congregationalists allowed for a wider range of ideas um, to deal with. You know, you have every, I mean, theologically, they're an incredibly diverse group. You have everything from Ebina, who was practically Unitarian and was accused of being a Unitarian um, <laughs> when that was actually a bad thing to call a congregationalist. <laughs> Sorry, that's some bad sort of inside uh, Protestant humor. Um, but Ebina sure, no. <laughs> so, was accused of being a Unitarian to Kashiwagi, who politically was incredibly radical in some ways, but theologically was very conventional. Um, and so, you, and then there's everything in between. And so, and you know, Watase towards the end of his life, who's another figure to take up quite a bit, um, started exploring similarities between sort of Shinto mythology and Christian theology. I mean, you know, everything and anything was under the congregationalist umbrella. So it gave me a wide range of ideas and churches and congregations to deal with. But also um, the congregationalists, more than any other denomination, um, were the ones who engaged with empire in a very direct way. I mean, anyone living in Japan was, of course, living in an empire and therefore sort of at least passively or indirectly had to deal with empire, you know, the sort of emperor centered ideology in some way. But the congregationalists really took it head on and uh, partly because its most influential leaders, which included Ebina, were very, um, to put it crassly, kind of gung-ho imperialists. Um, and Kashiwagi was uh, also a leader among the Congregationalists, but uh, be- partly because he was so critical of imperialism, was often censored within uh, the Congregationalist meetings. And so um, the issue of the degree to which Christians should um, contribute towards imperialism and specifically the colonization of other nations was a topic that came up repeatedly in their publications, in meetings, in debates, in conflicts. And so it seemed to make the most sense. I mean, there's a practical issue that they're sort of a diverse group, but really, if you want to talk about Christians and empire, they're the group. If you want to focus on one group, they're the ones that make the most sense to look at. 
Right, and it comes through really well here. And just as an aside, even though I'm a uh, focus mostly on Catholicism, I did get your joke. It was very good. Uh, <laughs> and um, that's not just as an aside, an insult to Unitarians or Congregationalists, but if you, yeah, but. <laughs> but uh, what's funny, um, as just another aside, is that two um, very important or an, a very important um, uh, Korean Presbyterian missionary. Um, Reverend Underwood mm-hmm. uh, was very critical of uh, Abina. He did not like Abina. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, he was very theologically conservative, so that's... Yes, well, Abina was... Um, he had a lot of... And he was one of these visionaries who didn't really think through the implications of everything <laughs> he said necessarily. I mean, you really get that sense. There are a few of these people. I mean, Kagawa Toyohiko, who's a very well-known internationally at the time, internationally renowned speaker, um, I sort of think of them in a similar way, that they're these, they're really much more the visionary than they were sort of the practical implementer. And so they would just kind of say whatever came to mind without thinking through how that would affect their church, their congregations, ecclesiastical structure. You know, they were not concerned with those things. That was for like the little people to deal with. So I can, yeah, I, and Evina sort of, I think he enjoyed um, upsetting people to a certain degree, uh, despite being an incredibly, you know, um, because this is all audio, you can't, I can't show you a picture, but he was such a Victorian gentleman. I mean, he had the full beard and, you know, was always very dapper and dressed very well. And so was his wife, who um, is a fascinating person who um, basically forced her way into the school for Western learning. Her, um, all the boys did not want any girls there. And she and um, another girl who they were both sisters of boys attending. They basically insisted until Jane, Jane's agreed to let them stand in the hallway to listen in on instruction. That's how determined they were to get this Western education. So his wife was in her own right and a remarkable woman who was also bilingual and um, accompanied on him on several of his trips abroad and, you know, gave her own um, talks to different groups. So, uh, yeah, they're quite a they're quite a colorful group. <laughs> oh, fun. So so the focus is on of your book, of course, is on this relationship between Christianity and imperialism. So maybe that's a good segue into chapter one, which is on Christian relationships with the imperial rescript on education. Yes. So maybe you could tell some of our listeners may not be familiar with what the imperial rescript is. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit sure. more about that and then the kind of struggles they had with it? Absolutely. So um, there are. Um, to contextualize that, let me just uh, talk very briefly about the Constitution. So um, Japan, um, very many history lesson here. Japan went through what or what's called the Meiji Restoration in 1868 when the Tokugawa uh, feudal government was toppled and a coalition of other domains, uh, mainly led by Satsuma and Shoshu, contemporary Kagoshima and um, Yamaguchi, um, installed the teenage emperor Meiji onto the throne and they called it a restoration as in, you know, the restoring of rule to the emperor, although the emperor had not really mattered politically since the late Heian period. So it had been eight, 900 years since anybody really cared what the emperor thought about anything. So this was really a strategic um, move in many ways uh, and a symbolic move in many ways, but nonetheless, it was called sort of this imperial, a restoration of imperial rule. And, um, but the other issue was how Japan was going to survive in the 19, late 19th century sort of power struggle globally and, um, and how to avoid being colonized. This is sort of the main immediate concern. And eventually one 
one um, thing that was done was to create a constitution because constitutions are something that all sort of modern nation states have. And there was a need to demonstrate to sort of the Western powers that Japan could look like a modern nation state. And so over, you know, there was some deliberation and, you know, different study groups were sent out, including Ito Hirobumi, um, who you know so well, um, who uh, was <laughs> prime minister at one time and later the resident general of Korea, who was assassinated by Anjungun. But Ito Hirobumi went to Europe to investigate um, different constitutions there, as well as the U.S. Constitution. And that was um, promulgated by the emperors, the way that we say it, but basically symbolically was handed down from the emperor to the Japanese people in 1889. And then following soon after that, the Imperial Rescript on Education, Kyoikuchokugo, was um, issued, and the Imperial Rescript is basically just a sort of a declaration by the emperor. So it's, um, there, you know, is there an Imperial Rescript on, like, sailors and soldiers, and there, these different declarations by the emperor, but this one, more than any other, had long-lasting influence. And what it was, was uh, quite a simple document and the text is really a paragraph long and it basically relays um, in language that is sort of patterned after sort of a a neo-confucian sort of a neo-confucian set of ideas what the purpose of education is and what it does is to um, reinforce the traditional five relationships of Confucianism but to really it's set out that education is to um, create imperial subjects who are loyal and faithful to the emperor. And it includes the line, you know, who are willing to die for the country when asked to do so. But, you know, that's not anything that remarkable. I mean, that's how is that different from um, the Pledge of Allegiance? I mean, in in its in its actual form and its actual words, it's quite an innocuous document. It does, it's not that profound, really. Um, but what turned it into something much more potent was um, the following year. So this is 1899, 1891. Inoue Tetsujiro, who at the time was the chair of the new, newly developed Department of Philosophy, which meant mainly German um, philosophy at the University of Tokyo, um, was commissioned by the Ministry of Education to write a commentary of the Imperial Rescript. And um, this book, um, the Chokugo Engi, which I um, labored through once um, <laughs> long ago and have basically, I took copious notes. So I wouldn't have to go through that experience again. Right, yeah. um, it's a line by line commentary on the significance of each concept. And it's really that commentary, which then of course became the basis for ethics curriculum. I mean, you know, it's way over the heads of children and probably was way over the heads of a lot of the teachers, but in theory was intended as sort of a, a manual, um, for teachers to aid their um, creation of ethics, cur- compulsory ethics curriculum in schools. Um, because the other thing with the, the Imperial Rescript on Education was the actual sort of fancy version, fancy document version of it was distributed to each school and was placed in a special place and was brought out for um, school ceremonies. And so it basically became this proxy um, 
device for the emperor's presence himself within school spaces. And um, it was the object of ritual bowing, um, as you would do at a as, at a shrine or in front of the emperor. So it really was treated like a replacement for the emperor himself. And um, whether or not students actually thought through the ideas expressed in it, it was intended to be a proxy for the emperor. And the and in um, this uh, commentary that Inoue wrote, um, he basically asserts that the basis um, of national survival is collective patriotism and that any deviation from a collective patriotism will basically threaten the future of the nation and threaten its survival. And he um, and so this uh, document based and, and the commentary that came after it basically links education and more specifically ideas in our heads or in their heads with the type with a very specific expression of loyalty and patriotism necessary for national survival. So that it's not just about outward expression or outward ritual, but that the ideas and ideas ideally cultivated through the education system will be what keeps Japan together that collectively as a unified like Borg like nation, um, they will fend off uh, the imperial sort of um, intents of Western powers. And it's this assertion that thought, um, that loyal thought and a very specific kind of loyal thought is the fundamental obligation of each imperial subject that pits Christians against um, Inoue Tetsujiro specifically, but also sort of places them at the center of debates about what it really means to be a loyal imperial subject. Uh, because up until this point, it hadn't been so, there have been a lot of debates about what, what it meant to be Japanese, what it meant to be faithful, what it meant to be loyal. But it's the way he define, defines it and also his position as this key um intellectual influence and also through um, the sort of official role as the as the commentator for the rescript as, you know, um, sort of uh, sanctioned by the Ministry of Education that really um, puts Christians in a new and really modern um, debate about their suitability to Japan in this very uh, critical moment where Japan has most likely not going to be colonized, but still its future is somewhat uncertain. And this is in 1891, 1892. There's ritual actions, right, that Mm -hmm. cause some concern for Christians, too. Right. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, the most famous case. uh, So when the Imperial Restrict on Education is first distributed to all schools, um, there are ceremonies that are that each school is required to to go through to sort of welcome this document. And um, there's a very famous incident or notorious incident where um, Uchimura Kanzo, who is um, sort of an iconoclastic Japanese Christian figure, um, at the time he was a school teacher at sort of the, the Tokyo, um, sort of an elite Tokyo school. He was present at the ceremony. And the way the story is told is that, you know, he, he was patriotic. He loved his country, but he also, um, felt really troubled about the requirement that he bow before the document because to him that felt like idolatry. So he wasn't sure what to do. He didn't want to be disrespectful. Um, that was not his intention, but he also um, didn't want to commit what he 
you know, thought could be a sin um, and ended up sort of not doing a full bow um, from the waist, but sort of nodding his head. And of course, um, most likely everybody was watching him to see how he would respond at this moment. And everybody picked up on his lack of full bowing and this became this incredibly famous incident. He was accused of treason of Les Majesty. He had to resign his position. Um, He was not charged with a crime, but he uh, did resign. Um, His wife at the time, he had like three wives. I think it was his second wife. Um, I think he divorced his first wife. I think his second wife um, ended up dying of illness, I think as a result of the stress. I mean, it was this incredibly traumatic moment for him, but also this very public um, incident that everybody in the country would have known about of how a Christian did not show the emperor or this em- the emperor's proxy proper respect. And, um, and so I take up this, um, I take up the relationship between the imperial rescript on education, or I guess to be more precise, the debate surrounding the imperial rescript on education and Christians as the first chapter, because I really wanted to explore sort of why were what is the controversy about Christians? I think it's very easy, um, you know, certainly in the case of Japan and also in other places that are not sort of traditionally Christian to just assume, well, of course it was controversial. Or of course there was trouble. But I think we have to really unpack the why and that and not just make assumptions because that's silly. And so I really wanted to um, unpack what exactly was going on. Why were Christians, and it's not that Christ, everybody embraced Christians all along, but there's a particular kind of um, controversy that emerges around Christians at this moment, and that's what I wanted to really get at. And um, one of the really fascinating things that I realized was that this wasn't, at least the way, because um, Inoue Tetsujiro continued to write in, um, uh, so I, I should pr- Say, or I should explain that um, there is an incredible, uh, incredible sort of print culture in Japan at this time. I mean, there's a joke, um, you know, with Japanese American history that if you had three Japanese immigrants in any location, they'd start a newspaper. And the reason why that was <laughs> is because Japan, there's just a gazillion weeklies, monthlies, um, you know, of all kinds of uh, political, cultural, um, whatever, um, you know, opinions and people would take each other on. So if somebody wrote in a, an editorial in one newspaper, then somebody would respond to it in theirs and then they would have a back and forth for like a month and a half. And so there was just an explosion of commentary about um, Christians in relation. And it was actually called, um, you know, sort of the the controversy between religion and education. And, um, but what I discovered when I was sort of unpacking all of this was that this wasn't about Christians being the wrong religion, even. Um, although surely there were people who did make that argument and there are Buddhists contributing to this debate um, who did make that point, you know, that they were well suited for Japan, but Christians were the wrong religion. But for people like Inoue Tetsujiro, who had studied, he had studied in Berlin for eight years prior to returning to Japan and before this, and for others who were really invested in appearing modern and um, sophisticated and cosmopolitan and were thinking about Europe more so than America, certainly, so the intellectual culture in Europe, there was a concerted effort 
to frame this in terms of not Christian versus Japanese, but secular governance versus sort of backwards religion. And partly they were um, picking up on sort of a um, rejection might be too strong a term, but certainly among the intellectual classes in Europe, uh, a real questioning of um, of the role of the church. Um, certainly state churches in Europe and um, sort of a rejection of of religious doctrine um, influencing and interfering with with governance. And so you have someone like Inoue targeting Christianity as a backwards set of ideas um, that's out of step with modernity. And uh, and so this is actually quite a a, uh, intricate and, and complex Debate um, that emerges from this, this um, in a way, this collision between Christians on one hand and those who are trying to assert a very specific notion of loyalty and patriotism um, in the beginning of the 1890s. Yeah, I thought it was really striking the diversity of reactions that were there among uh, among the Congregationalists and among other Christians about what they should do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's. So the purpose of this chapter was sort of twofold. One was to lay the groundwork of sort of or to kind of find a baseline of what what are the fundamental issues that sort of worked against Christians um, at this moment. But the second was to also demonstrate how these charges that were leveled against Christians um, forced them to really think about what they believed in a way that they hadn't had to before. And in that process, really exposed differences among them in terms of what they believe. So like you said, you know, there's this incredible diversity. And so initially, you know, you have people like, you know, Tezujiro questioning their loyalty and they all said, what's, that's not true. We're perfectly loyal. And then, but the, and, but, but, but like what comes after that revealed such different um, ideas about, theology, um, ecclesiology, you know, about sort of what it meant to be Christian, that it really um, sort of forced divisions within the denomination itself, as well as between denominations. And so, like I, you know, I keep mentioning Ebina as a sort of um, controversial figure, but, you know, this is when people like Ebina start to be much more emphatic about a very liberal theology that, I mean, honestly, you know, from the perspective of, I mean, the most famous is um, right after this whole controversy with, you know, it happens in 1901, there's this really famous theological debate between Ebina and uh, one of the most prominent of the Presbyterians, um, and um, Uemura Masahisa. And Uemura is a very good Presbyterian who is a Trinitarian, and they go through this very uh, esoteric debate about um, whether or not Trinitarianism is valid and but it's through um you know this these doctrinal differences really begin to emerge as a result of having to respond to these political charges um because for example you know somebody like Evino would say bowing before the imperial rescript is no big deal because this prohibition against you know idol worship is a very arcane old-fashioned um pers- uh, old-fashioned christian belief that the modern sort of liberal like and when I say liberal theology, I mean specifically sort of the the um, higher criticism that comes out of Germany in the mid-19th century. But, you know, he thinks that, well, that's what people back in the day thought. But 
we don't hold to that because, you know, we know that these are like Schleiermacher certainly wouldn't have cared about idols because that's all of, you know, none of these categories are relevant anymore. But then you had somebody um, who was much more uh, conventional in their, in their theology who would find this absolutely anathema. So um, it was in their engagement with these charges that you had then um, these quite significant doctrinal differences emerging. And so um, the division more broadly nationally between um, those who accepted Christians as loyal imperial subjects and those who didn't um, was also sort of overlapped over this um, internal Christian division over, okay, well, what does it mean to be Christian in Japan? And I start there because I feel like that is the, that is the first question that needs to be answered and the one that they grappled with for, I mean, from this moment, probably, I would say, even with the contemporary church, this is still a question. What does it mean to be Japanese and Christian? And it's Inoue's claim that um, this collective patriotism defines Japan um, that really proved quite quite a challenge for um, Japanese Christians who, um, I, again, to kind of put it crassly, who love their country and... Um, but we're also devout. And how do you how do you resolve that? And that's the challenge that um, that sort of plays out in the rest of the book. Right. And another event that that this issue kind of comes up again after the Imperial Rescript on Education is covered in your second chapter. The Russo-Japanese War is a holy war. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you could tell us, because that's that's really striking to me, because, of course, Russia was a majority Christian country with a um, I mean, it's a. Christianity, Orthodox Christianity was the state religion. Mm-hmm. How is it that uh, these Japanese Congregationalists are understanding a war with a Christian country as a holy war? So this is I I love this chapter, by the way, because okay. I love that that because um, it doesn't make sense. Right. I mean, you just think like, what? <laughs> um, and um, some of the things that they write in the beginning, it's just again, it's that optimism where you just think like clear, like were you not paying attention to what was going on? How can you, how can you assert these claims? But there, um, and this is not just um, these guys. I mean, this is something. So um, for your listeners who are familiar with the visualizing cultures website um, at MIT, which is a wonderful, wonderful um, resource. If you teach um, Japanese, history, oh, yes. uh, but also sort of East Asian history, because it includes some um, Chinese images, but it's fantastic. But I use the Russo Japanese war section so much in my own courses because it really reveals how um, embattled Russia's status as a Western empire was. And um, I mean, so when I was an undergraduate, I took a course on Russian literature and I absolutely loved it, partly because it felt so much like Japanese modern literature to me. I mean, the issues that Russian writers were grappling with, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Turgenev, um, you know, even uh, Gogol. I mean, these are these are people grappling with the place um, an identity of their country where they're not quite, they're not quite either, right? And Japan is also in this sort of, str- I mean, they're sort of more ostensibly, quote unquote, Eastern. Um, but again, there are these, Japan is an empire, but it's Asian. And Russia is an empire, but not if you're from the French perspective, Russia surely is not <laughs> Western, right? So you have right. this, um, 
these are this the Rooster Japanese War was um, sort of publicized as the first major conflict between modern empires, but where one was the west, one was from the west, and one was from the east, and yet both are in this strange gray area where there's so much. Um, they're both suffering from severe inferiority complexes, basically. And you see that in the um, and those who outside of Russia and Japan who took sides also reflect that. Right. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt thought Japan was awesome and wanted Japan to win. Um, <laughs> apparently, he bought books about the war and gave them to all his friends um, there. You know, there were other uh, sort of, um, you know, columnists and people, um, I guess, probably particularly in the UK and America who really um, because they had such a low opinion. Um, and of course I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean everybody in the country, but the people who are writing this had such a low opinion of Russia and did not consider it sufficiently modern, that they were actually rooting for Japan as the more modern sort of gentleman's empire or the more Anglo-Saxon. And that's a term that actually sort of, um, keeps popping up is this desire to appear Anglo-Saxon, specifically not Western, but Anglo-Saxon. And so the Congregationalists also um, accuse Russia of, uh, you know, great injustices of, of what now we would call human rights violations. They talk about the pogroms that re- the Russian Empire, you know, is um, conducting against um, Jews in Russia. And so they argue that they are that this is a critical moment for Japan to um, demonstrate to the world that it is the more civilized and um, and also they call out to Japan's Christians to show the world that it is in fact the Christian empire in this conflict. I mean, when you think about the actual statistics, this is nonsense, right? I mean. God, I'm, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but surely the percentage of Christians in the overall population is well under 1% at this point. This is this is not a large group of people. Um, but the, the reason why I feel like this is so critical is that it doesn't matter that there are not very many of them because they were people who uh, many of them were very or they were disproportionately represented in um, higher education. And so rub shoulders with other people who were um, opinion makers, who were influential, and also published a lot of things that were read very widely. And so they may have been few in number, but they were incredibly influential or certainly made themselves heard and known and um, really in the beginning of the war seemed to see this as an opportunity to demonstrate to the nation that they were sort of the moral stewards of the nation, that they would really take advantage of this moment. I I quote this um, passage in the chapter from um, an article in one of the, in the uh, Congregationalist Church's weekly newspaper where they talk about, you know, how just like during the American Civil War, um, we need to use this opportunity to basically, um, you know, that this is the fields are ripe for harvest. And now is our opportunity to gather converts because a time of war is a time um, when people are most aware of their sort of both mortality and also their need for moral guidance. And that this this is the time for Christians in Japan to shine. Of course, that was not at all what happened, but that was. And, and I think that the incredible dissonance between their aspirations during the war um, 
you know, I mean, the chapter is just sort of full of these examples of all the things they hoped would change public opinion about them and how they would, you know, guide the nation and there would be mass conversions. And I mean, it's this incredible plan. Um, and then the reality that the dissonance is incredible. But um, and and that I think the dissonance, that tension there is is so important and and also um, reveals how the the incredible diversity of reaction to something like the Russo-Japanese War. I mean, there's there's been recent scholarship, um, you know, of um, about the Russo-Japanese War that really sort of adds texture and complexity and doesn't just um, present it as, as this sort of Japan's first war of, um, and the, it was the first important war for imperialism as well because um, this is how really they they begin um, taking Korea. Um, but but there is such a there's such there's this incredible drama going on internally um, at the same time. And um, I mean, this is when the Heimin Shimbun, the commoner news, which is the first socialist newspaper, it um, comes about, uh, which uh, many of the editorial staff were either Christian or had been Christian at, you know, at an earlier point. So there's so much going on. And it's such a it, it is sort of disconcerting to uh, to flip that narrative from, you know, Russia being the Christian empire to Japan attempting to be the Christian empire. But um, that is one of the reasons why I really loved getting into this material, because it was a side of this war that I had not been aware of. And and it's so minuscule, you know, when you think about the over um, overall what is happening. But I don't think that diminishes at all the significance of um, of their aspirations that that it appeared possible to this group of people as ridiculous as that may appear to us now, uh, nonetheless, again, demonstrates the, the wide openness of, of the future um, from their vantage point that this didn't seem silly to them at all. And it seemed completely possible. Um, And also shows sort of, you know, a naive optimism that as, as silly as it may be, there's something I mean, it, it can also be incredibly dangerous, that kind of optimism. You know, I think it it made them myopic or made them blind to um, the violence that comes with empire, that always comes with empire. There's no way of getting around it. And I think they never, there is a lot of them, like Ebina, who just somehow had his blinders on the whole time and did not recognize that. But there's also something um, bittersweet about that optimism that that was possible is um is also really interesting to me. Right. Well, one thing I mean, especially with Ebina, that you you know he's someone who's really supporting the war, who sees this as, as a you know as a, as a holy war, um, who's encouraging people to fight in it. And you talked about this this bitter sweetness. Um, I wonder if you could tell our listeners because I, I thought it was really well how you great how you structured this chapter to capture that about what happens in the Hibiya riots. Right. Yeah. So. Um, for people who are familiar with Japanese history know that uh, the Russo-Japanese War was incredibly costly to Japan. Um, the casualty rate was very high, and had the war continued on much longer, uh, it's not certain that Japan would have won. But what um, the sort of decisive blow for Russia was they had sent their Atlantic fleet down around and up towards Japan um, to engage in naval battle, and the Japanese Navy had intercepted them, and so... I mean, Russia also was in a bad place. So both both had, both countries had overextended themselves considerably. But 
Um, Teddy Roosevelt intervened and brokered a deal, the Portsmouth Treaty, and ended the war. Japan was the victor. Um, Russia ceded its rights to um, the southern tip of the Aldong Peninsula, as well as the bit of the railroad that it had there, um, which became the South Manchurian Railway, and um, and also part of Sakhalin. And, um, you know, except Japan did not get a war indemnity from Russia. And I mean, in reality, what Japan was able to gain through this war was really fortuitous, and they were just lucky that the war didn't continue. But uh, especially because after the Sino-Japanese War in 1894 to 1895, Japan had gotten a war indemnity from China, the lack of a of a, of a payment from Russia was seen as um, a real slap in the face, um, and so that uh, that led to rioting. Uh, the Hibiya riots, which went on for days. Martial law had to be called. I mean, there's all, you know, um, police boxes and streetcars were burned down. Um, there's stories of people fishing in the Imperial moat. I mean, it was, you know, madness and mayhem for days in Tokyo. But among the targets for, um, you know, destruction were Christian churches. And I include in the chapter um, statistics. I can't. Um, there's. It was some number of churches. I don't want to take up time searching for the exact sentence because I'm looking and can't quite seem to find it. But it was uh, churches were clearly marked as targets for this destruction. And, you know, that streetcars were targeted has suggested that um, it was a sign of sort of Western um, industrialization or technology. Um, so those were destroyed as, you know, expression of anger at that and police boxes, obviously um, the authorities, but that Christian churches have been targeted seemed to basically just undermine all of the hopes and aspirations that the Christians, um, that these particular Christians had had during the course of the war, that at this moment when everybody should have been celebrating the victory against Russia, that, there's this incredible expression of anger and disappointment and resentment. And Christians were clearly among those targeted and they were clearly targeted because they were not seen as part of the group, that there's something about them um, that made them vulnerable, um, that they were, you know, basically foreign. And um, that, I think was a really crushing blow for this group who had labored so hard in um, supporting the troops and sending care packages and, um, you know, preaching against the ills of venereal disease. And uh, <laughs> one of my more favorite episodes about how, you know, they always try to, there's this tension talking about soldiers, right? As there is in every war, but on one hand, you, you celebrate them and you honor them because they're the ones who are risking their lives. And yet you're also really concerned about the bad things they do uh, before they go and risk their lives. And, all of this effort had been for naught because clearly the churches were targeted and the way that um, sort of a, a coalition of um, leaders from um, different denominations agreed, uh, they met and sort of discussed what had happened. They basically came up with a scapegoat and their scapegoat was somebody who is theologically very conservative. And they claimed that 
this man and his disciples who were preaching against idol worship had basically incited um, the mob violence directed at Christians. That It wasn't, as it seems pretty obvious to us, um, that Christians were targeted because they were being rejected, but that they were laying blame at the door of somebody who was theologically different from them, who um, was very conservative. And so, again, you see the emergence of this sort of doctrinal um, divisiveness as a way, as both a way to um, explain um, the continued um, lack of acceptance, but also um, just the, you know, the inability of these Christians to overcome their doctrinal differences. And um, going back to a point you had uh, mentioned earlier, this idea of, you know, Japanese Christians doing what Western Christendom had failed. One of the things that they really aspired to do throughout was to prove an ecu- that ecumenism was possible, that the doctrinal differences that had plagued Western Christendom, you know, that had led to all these bloody wars in Europe and um, just the divisiveness of um, doctrinal differences and the creation of different sects and uh, denominations, that that kind of division Japanese Christians could overcome through their shared commitment to unity. And of course, that wasn't possible because why would they be any different? Um, but so you have at the end of this, not only this incredible disappointment at being targeted in the riots, but also a return to sort of, uh, you know, denomination or doctrinal um, sort of petty infighting. Um, so a failure on all fronts, you know, a failure in convincing the nation that they mattered and were part and also a failure in achieving the kind of ecumenism that they really um, thought would distinguish them from from the West. Right. And also, um, I'm just to, to highlight again the diversity of your book, you, you, there were also people who opposed the war, like um, Kashiwagi. Yes. Uh, so, uh, could you, oh, go on. Yeah. I, um, so, Kashiwagi was one of um, the reasons why I wanted to write this book. He is somebody who has almost, I mean, you'll find his name in a couple indexes sort of mentioned in passing, but. Um, by and large, he is wholly unknown in English language scholarship. I mean, people in Japan who work on Christianity know who he is. And um, in fact, if I can tell a very short, very, very brief anecdote, I met two, I've met two of his grandchildren. But um, one who I met, who is this wonderful, amazing woman who still lives in Annaka, and her husband is actually a retired American missionary. But um, she told me this amazing story about how in the 60s, she was involved in student activism. And she never knew her grandfather because he had died before she was born. But there was this book that was apparently quite popular and is completely unavailable now that was um, published by these activists that had sort of many bios of different, you know, sort of their intellectual or um, sort of activist forefathers. So figures in Japanese history who would have, you know, been sort of fellow travelers in the cause. And one of the people in this book apparently was Kashiwa Gigan. And she had no idea that he had this kind of reputation or that this could be his legacy as um, sort of a elder of social justice, of, um, of dissent, of a kind of courage in the face of um, authority. And so that was how she first learned of her grandfather was um, it, by seeing him featured in this book. And she told me that like, she doesn't have a copy that you can't find them anymore. They're all, you know, they're printed on really cheap paper, but um, so Kashiwaki is this very interesting figure who I 
just accidentally came across because his biography was at the UCLA library and uh, written by Katano Masako, who's an incredible Japanese scholar who's dedicated her life to um, his uh, making his papers, his diary um, accessible. She's um, transferred his diary. You know, she's published his diary, which was great for me because then I didn't have to struggle through the handwritten version. Um, she's uh, put out a edition of his letters, which is also great. Um, but Kashiwagi was uh, not um, not from the same group Ebina came from, didn't go to the Kumamoto School of Learning. He grew up in Niigata, on the other side of Japan, um, from a Jodo Shinshu, uh, so Buddhist temple family, um, and ended up, um, as is the way of many of these young men, um, going to... Um, you know, teacher's college and becoming, and he basically got his first job as the principal and only employee of a small elementary school in a village just outside of Annaka. And um, this is in the early Meiji period. And just by coincidence um, was befriended by a couple of the members of the Annaka church when Ibina was the first minister there. And so he, you know, attended events, became very interested, was baptized by Ebina, in fact, um, and then attempted to go to Doshisha, but ran out of money, said to return to Guma and continue working, did eventually go to, to Doshisha, where um, Nijima really took him in, um, and he developed a very close relationship with Nijima, and uh, eventually, so, and then Kashiwagi worked with Watase Tsuneyoshi, becomes the director of the Korea mission. So he crossed paths with sort of many, he was somebody who didn't come from this sort of elite group and yet crossed paths with most of them. And he was well known. And I think begrudgingly respected even by his intellectual foes. Um, and eventually he became in 1897. Um, I'm really, I'm like a typical historian. I'm terrible about dates, but um, he, <laughs> goes um, and becomes the minister of the Annaka church. And um, for he was there for, I think, 35 years, about thir or 38 years until he's forced to resign in 1935 because he will not shut up. And basically his son, his oldest son and the police make a deal that if he if the son gets him to resign and retire, then the police will arrest him. Um, but basically, he becomes this very dedicated voice in the wilderness, um, almost literally. I mean, Annaka's not wilderness. It's a, you know, stericultural town um, in at the base of the mountains um, that ring the northern edge of the Kanto Plains. So um, today you can actually take the bullet train from from Ueno, not Tokyo. It's the, the Nagano train that goes out um, to Nagano. Um, but the that station is, I think, the second least used <laughs> station. It's one of these horrible 80s bubble projects. That was a terrible idea. Um, but the mountains are beautiful. Um, Harunam, Yogi, um, and Akagi are these the three famous mountains of Guma. And Annakas are nestled at the base of this um, at, by rivers, sort of at the in the valley um, under these majestic mountains. But he, in, in this, you know, sort of small town at the base of the mountains, um, creates uh, this monthly, basically it's like half monthly church newsletter, half political mouthpiece for him that he publishes almost without interruption. I mean, there's a couple times where he gets censored and, you know, there are a couple missing issues. Um, but basically without um, interruption from 18, I want to say 1898 until 
19, well, he stops contributing 1935 because that's the deal, but it continues on until 1937 and then it becomes, it's replaced by something else and that becomes replaced by something else. So basically for 30 some years, he month on a monthly basis publishes this um, thing that has a limited circulation, 600, but um, is a remarkable source. And, um, for scholars out there, it is there's a reprint edition available. Um, a number of universities in the United States do um, have it, including UCLA. Thank God, because without that, I would have had to spend another year in Japan doing my research. But um, it is just a remarkable source. And he is a rem- I mean, he wasn't perfect. He um, probably, you know, he had nine children. Um, so as any parent, I'm not one, but I, you know, I can't even imagine one child, let alone nine was um, (laughs) often short tempered with his children. Um, you know, his poor wife having given birth to nine kids, um, was ill a lot and, um, he, he couldn't be available for everybody as much as he wanted. And his diary is actually full of sort of self-recriminations about how tomorrow I will not yell at, you know, this son or that son again. I need to stop doing this. But so he was not a perfect man. But, um, you know, given his sort of harried um, daily life and um, again, sorry, these are all sort of tangents. But one of the most amazing things that I saw when I was doing research, I mean, it's just it's not amazing in terms of, you know, sort of extending my argument, but was just one of those like things that you see that you just, you just think like, this is like, this is why original sources are so important is um, his notebooks um, are all in the Doshisha um, archives. And I was going through them and I, there's several where his sermon notes are on one page and on the facing page, you see sketches by like a toddler. (laughs) So you can tell that he was probably writing his sermon while he was watching like a couple of his kids were in his study with him because maybe his wife was sick or maybe she was out of town or, you know, or just that there were a lot of them. So they were splitting duties. I don't, you know, but I don't know the exact circumstances, but you can tell that, you know, daycare was happening on one page (laughs) and sermon was happening on the other. And it just that um, there's a certain humanity to him. um, That's much, I mean, not that Ebina didn't, I mean, Ebina had four children, um, but, you know, they had a housekeeper who, incidentally, was Kashiwagi's eldest sister, widowed eldest <laughs> sister, was Ebina's housekeeper for many years. Um, these people are all very intermarried and all connected or literally related. But, um, but anyway, the most important thing about Kashiwagi is that he very consistently, um, sort of in this really obnoxious, badgering way, denounced um, violence, um, militarism, imperial expansion, capitalism, um, without calling himself a socialist, he embraced the socialists. And he, in fact, you know, advertised the subscription information for the socialist newspaper in his own church newsletter. And I mean, literally, the other half of this newsletter was, you know, which churches in the Guma area there were and what their addresses were, who their, what their church attendance was. What this, I mean, it was that sort of, you know, ho-hum church denominational newsletter and yet the other half would be um you know reviews of tolstoy's ideas or why japan should be more like switzerland or um why and i mean some of the most amazing things that he published um, for instance during the great kanto earthquake of 1923 um, his denunciation of the the massacre of koreans is really remarkable um and it's amazing it got published i mean he 
the local police warned him to sort of hold off on distributing it for a day or two because they thought that there would be, um, you know, some sort of statement from the home ministry suppressing it. But eventually that didn't happen. So he was able to distribute it just fine, um, which is shocking because there there were instances where that wasn't true. But um, it's it's such a just you know, he denounces the education system and how it creates these, you know, sort of mindless automatons who have no um, conscience, who are able to say, oh, I, you know, I did this for the nation or I can't be held culpable for these murders because I was part of a group. And he just, you know, you feel this like sort of this burning in, in it's like it's like Jesus, you know, overturning the um, the the. Money changers tables. Yes, thank you. I'm like, it wasn't the traders who. Yeah, um, I've been <laughs> been distracted with moving and everything the last couple of months. So yes, but it's like the it's you feel that same kind of righteous indignation coming through in this moment where there was a there was a huge amount of censorship in that in the months after the Great Okanto earthquake. Um, both for and he also does denounce the the assassination of um, Itonoe and Osugi Sakai and Osugi's nephew, which was the other very famous um, murder that happened in the aftermath of the earthquake. But he is this really remarkable figure, and uh, when I just and again, I don't want to overemphasize how remarkable he is because I don't want to I don't want to write a hagiography of him. I don't want to um, I don't think he would want to be sort of turned into a saint more than he was. But but there's something really important, I think, in being able to say that such a person existed who was able to say these things and who got those ideas out and who was influential. I mean, people like Yoshino Sakuzo, who was an incredibly important scholar and um, politician, read his newsletter regularly and would correspond with him about the ideas in it. I mean, this is not, you know, just read by sort of fringe people. There were uh, people who who were quite important or influential. Um, you know, the, the socialists advertised his newsletter in their own. So there was, you see also how just because somebody was out in the countryside that didn't um, necessarily limit their influence or their voice. And, and it also gave him a very different perspective than, um, Ebina's. Um, I mean, Ebina's church was in Tokyo, literally a stone's throw from Tokyo University. And Kashiwagi, I mean, his church was historically important, but it had a small congregation. It was in this, you know, backwater sort of silk, silk reeling town. And that his perspective was quite different. And um, and I felt this real sort of responsibility to. Um, make him known, you know, at the very least, um, that in in all of his imperfections, the fact that he existed, I thought was a really important thing to get out there. Well, excellent one uh, for our listeners. This shows the the incredible richness of this book is the fact that we've we've talked we've kept poor Emily here for over an hour <laughs> and we've only covered the introduction in two of the chapters. Oh no! So. But no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Like I said, that's that's uh, listeners. There's what you heard was great. Get the book because there's even more. Yes, that, uh, we just talked about the Japan part. Um, it also goes into Korea, into China. Can I say like just a couple sentences of course. about the other chapters? So, um, sure. One of the challenges about this book, but one of the things that made it really fun to write was um, that I decided that it was important to take on the transnational aspect of uh, sort of the 
in a weird, ironic way, the opportunities made possible by Japanese imperialism, um, opportunities, I say that somewhat ironically, but um, so I've, I trace them out um, abroad. So I also talk about Japanese immigrants in the, the U.S. as well as um, sort of colonial settlers in Korea and uh, in Supreme Manchuria, as well as Shanghai, where Japan was part of the international settlement. Um, but sort of the core, the middle section of the book also deals with the most sort of obvious direct way that Japanese Christians engaged in imperialism, which was, uh, surprise, surprise, to be missionaries. And, um, and the great, the great irony, or sort of the, the funny, the funniest part is, of course, when Japanese missionaries went to Korea to evangelize Koreans. Um, and, but that's a long, complicated story. So yes, go out and buy the book if you want to know more. Um, but the weird sort of addendum to that story is how after the March 1st movement, when um, it was very clear that the mission was not a success, um, the the congregationalists decided to, to send missionaries to the parts of China where there were a lot of Koreans, mostly in exile, to carry on the work of... Um, sort of tackling what they called the Chosenji Mundai or the Korean problem, but in areas where Koreans had gone to get away from the Japanese. And so um, that was actually one of the most, that was a chapter that sort of emerged out of the sources that I had not planned on because I had no idea that was a thing, um, but which I found really fascinating because what in the world were they thinking? Um, <laughs> I mean, these poor Koreans, you know, um, Finally, they're like in Shanghai and the French concession where all the, the bad things happened or all the sort of untoward things happened. Or these, you know, the many Koreans who fled into Manchuria, either for economic opportunity or um, just to get away from the Japanese. Suddenly, these Japanese missionaries show up and knock on their door and say, come join our church. And they were probably thinking, what? Why are you here? Please go away. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then so. That's sort of at the extent outward, but I also trace um, sort of uh, how Christianity is is different in the countryside, sort of falling off of the, what I said with Kashiwagi, and part of that piece involves agrarian evangelism, which um, fascinated me to no end because this, there's this very interesting obsession with Denmark um, that takes right. place, um, and that leads also to the last chapter, which is about the Manchurian agrarian settlements. And there were two Christian ones. Well, really 1.1 because the second one <laughs> lasted for all of three months. And that's a horrible, I mean, it's, they shouldn't have been imperialist, but the way those end, the way that all the Manchurian agrarian settlements ended was just awful. Um, and again, you know, without sort of downplaying the role that common people had in, in, um, making empire possible still those last weeks and the conduct of, you know, the, the Kantogun is, is just really sort of horrible. So, um, so yeah, there's a geographic um, range that goes from the U S West coast to Japan proper and Korea and to China. And then um, when Japan takes over all of Manchuria to Manchukuo, and also it extends up to the end of the war um, with the end of the Manchurian settlement. So that's the, that's the rest of the book. Oh, excellent. Well, and of course, I mean, the, the epilogue though, you do ask this, you try to answer this question. What is the importance of Christianity in Japan's empire and the future? Mm hmm. Right. So I've been so when I was finishing this book, when I was writing the epilogue, it was 
exactly a year ago. Um, it was early March, and um, I tried to end the book with the end of the Manchurian settlement, and the, peer, the anonymous reviewer suggested that there needed to be a bit more. And that was right when the... Um, in Japan itself, there was the debate over uh, the reinterpretation of Article 9, which, um, for your your listeners who aren't aware, is the article in the, the post-war Japanese constitution that um, says that Japan will not have a an army or engage in war. And, and there is the self-defense force because, you know, there's already been a reinterpretation, which is, Japan can have an army as long as it's defensive only. Um, but the political situation in Japan, so as I was finishing my book, I was watching the news or reading the news, and there was this, you know, sort of really horrifying <laughs> conflation of past and present that was happening around me that I found really disconcerting uh, that made sort of the stakes of my book seem much greater than they had appeared, say, four years ago um, or five years ago when it was still a dissertation and had not been sort of reworked into the book. And, um, I do think that, so there's been a secrecy law passed where, um, the, the, it is now illegal to expose state secrets, but what that is, is up to, and I hope I'm getting that language right. And if I'm, slightly wrong i apologize but um you know but what can be determined as a secret is up to the courts to decide so that's always fun because the courts can suddenly decide that something that's embarrassing for the state but not necessarily you know um confidential can be considered um illegal and therefore a violation of law so there's um this I would argue, if I may um, be political for a second, a real resurgence in, in the kind of ideology and, and a real endorsement of the same kinds of ideas that pushed and propelled um, Japan to where it ended up in the 30s, um, ongoing in Japan now. And, you know, the current prime minister, Abe Shinzo, is the grandson of one of the highest um, officials uh, of Manchukuo, Kishi Nobusuke, who was also the prime minister of Japan in um, when Japan re-signed the, uh, or renegotiated the um, U.S.-Japan Security Treaty in 19, I think it's 1960. Um, so I, when I was writing that epilogue, I was thinking very much about what to do now, um, even while I was thinking about sort of the legacy of this history. And you know, not to, I felt a little heavy handed in saying that, but I also do think that, you know, if not Christian, somebody else, I don't care who they are, but I think they're the, one of the, one of the things about this history that's really tragic is that all of these people who I write about, for the most part, I think, really believe they're doing good. You know, um, when I, when I taught, um, I would always, tell my students that unless you're the emperor in Star Wars, you don't actually consciously say that you're on the dark side. Most people, no matter what horrible things they're doing, want to believe they're doing good and come up with all sorts of convoluted ways to make themselves believe that even horrible, oppressive, violent things that they're doing to other people are somehow in those people's interests or are not bad or, you know, whatever it is, there's so many ways that human beings have over, you know, our history tried to make ourselves feel okay about doing bad things. And, and with people like Ebina, I've read his diaries and his letters. These are people who were 
abs- you know, who struggled and um, saw it so um, genuinely, I think, um, to do right. And yet the outcome was not so great in many of their cases. And so I think the, the the challenge that this history poses to those of us now is to really interrogate ourselves and to ask, um, because it, it's so easy to denounce the obvious sort of evildoers of history, but, you know, what's more relevant is is how we are similar to people like, say, Ebina or Watasir, these people who meant to do well, who meant to be benevolent, who thought they, that by engaging in the kinds of imperialism they did, that they were actually doing good by the Koreans or Chinese or whoever it was they were bothering. Um, you know, that, that the need to be vigilant and the need to really think about um, the impact and implications of our ideas and deeds both. And so I think the legacy of this history is partly that is that it's a, it's a challenge to, um, to think about those parallels. And also I think that more contemporary Christians have taken that lesson to heart, not everybody, but there, I mean, there is sort of a divide, but for a lot of people, I think there is this sense, especially sort of the more socially active um, ones that um, their Christian forefathers really failed um, the nation and the church community by not being a stronger, more courageous opponent to imperialism. And that um, their even though they were themselves not present for it, that as sort of the inheritors of the church community, that they have a responsibility and obligation sort of in a form of expiation to be vigilant now and to, um, to be brave and to um, endure potential censure or even legal action by um, standing up for um, the weak and the marginalized and to to try to um, defend um, justice and equality uh, if those things seem to be in danger. So I think, you know, it was a very, I mean, it's still, there's still things happening now that I find really sort of distressing, but especially when I was writing it because I was so in, involved in this material and then was watching the news and thought the same thing is happening. Why is this going on? Um, I ended up sort of ending with a much more, um, a much less sort of disassociated academic sounding voice, uh, but that's why. So that was a very long answer to your question. No, well, and a very good answer. Um, so again, one more reason to pick up this book. So we've taken a, a lot of your time <laughs> and want to thank you. But before we finally let you go, I want to ask you the traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on now? Okay, so I will try to make this a very quick answer, but so I've just made a massive career change, and I'm no longer an assistant professor. I am now the director of exhibit development at the San Diego Museum of Man for the first time in my adult life, not doing anything with Japan for now, or obviously with Japan, but um, I am still um, a historian through and through, and so my next project is um, I am so fascinated with how certain Japanese social reformers, Christian socialists became um, really sort of enamored with these small nations in Europe. They they talked about as um, shokokushigi or small sort of small countryism, and exhorted their compatriots to become more like Denmark and Switzerland. But you know the the images that inspired them of Denmark and Switzerland were themselves sort of stereotyped projections out of those countries at a time of sort of national sort of redefin- redefinition. So 
I want to think about how the ideas about nation and sort of national characteristics were circulating in the early 20th century and how sort of the less dominant or the less obvious examples like Denmark, for example, um, were nonetheless quite influential and what the means of that influence were. Um, in the case of Japan, information about Denmark was often mediated through, say, German scholarship translated into Japanese or, you know, English scholarship translated into Japanese. So I, it's this sort of nebulous, I'm not quite sure where I'm going yet with it, but I'm really interested in tracing out sort of the appropriation of ideas, misunderstandings, misappropriations, willful misunderstandings, uh, and how at the sort of the less obvious level, different places and people in these different places were looking for inspiration and um, ideas about how to be, um, again, you know, sort of creating these alternative visions for a better kind of place and a better society. So that's that's what I'm going to try to do on my weekends when I'm not doing my museum work. Well, excellent. That sounds really fascinating. Thank you again, Emily, for joining us. Thank you so much, Frank. This was really great. All right. You have a great day and goodbye. Bye. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be able to listen again soon.